Sue, you disagree with the idea that the uh, near-death experience is taking place in a non-local reality independent of brain function. Why? <laughs> For a million reasons. The more we learn about brain function, the more we learn about what's going on, the more things start to fall into place. I mean, we keep having to change big time. Neuroscience is like this huge mystery is going on, you know, consciousness and, and self and all this. But if you posit a non-local reality, <clears throat> you're basically saying, well, there's something out there that we can't touch, we can't measure, we don't know what it is. It doesn't provide any kind of an explanation of what's going on in, for example, out-of-body or near-death experiences. It doesn't provide any help in understanding the nature of thought or the nature of self. It's just, it's just a, an idea that people seem to love. That there's this, you know, that consciousness can exist beyond the brain. It, at its worst, I would say it's a, it's a longing, a clinging to myself is going to survive forever. You know. The, the, the rebellion against that I'm just an ephemeral creature here on this planet for a short time. Um, it, it seems to be ever popular, but it doesn't make any kind of sense. So what does the scientific evidence show? Well, there are a few cases which keep on being repeated again and again and again that seem to suggest things like somebody having a near-death experience and seeming to leave their body and actually seeing something that's going on and reporting it and then there are claims that this has happened when someone has no brain activity and this proves consciousness beyond the brain there are rather few of them they go round and round um, you know the, the, some of them are very old indeed I've looked into many of them in detail I just don't think it holds up meanwhile there's lots of evidence of what is actually going on in brains when people are coming close to death and more and more answers about how we can account for tunnels, lights, life reviews, um, the decision to return, all the classic things that we now know are pretty common um, in near-death experiences. Um, we're beginning to find answers and those answers come from what's happening in an actual brain. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start with life review. What is the scientific evidence about that? People describe this experience in which, I mean, the, the popular conception is my whole life flashed before me. But the descriptions are much more varied than that, but they can be, people, I think people struggle to, 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 to try to describe it. But it's like all, lots of memories all pop up at once. But it also very often, these memories kind of emerge in a, in a context of acceptance. There's something very interesting going on here um, that sometimes you have these very moving stories of people who, as it were, see a whole lot of memories from their childhood and they're able to see themselves being horrible to the other kids in the playground or being kind to somebody they, they didn't know or whatever it might be and seeing that all these things kind of fall into place as they had to happen and that's how it was and it's all right. And it's all right that I was horrid, and it's all right that I was nice, that sort of thing. Now, from, from the point of view of what we know going on, probably what's happening here is hyperactivity in the temporal lobes, you know, like random activity, and you'll get this when the brain is under severe strain, from whether it's lack of oxygen or, or whatever other cause it might be. So you're getting random firing in, in the parts of the brain that are handling these memories, and, and you get a lot of hyperactivity, it all comes flooding up. And you also get a release of the endorphins. Endorphins are these um, morphine-like chemicals that our brains produce 
that um, suppress play, pain and occur, for example, in childbirth. They occur in um, uh, soldiers, in, in battles. Um, uh, they, they reduce pain. They induce a sense of well-being, of um, everything is fine. And they also reduce the seizure threshold in the temporal lobes, meaning it makes it easier for this hyperactive firing to go on. So there's a, a clear link there between the emotional state and the memories that come up, which is wonderful when you start like, I mean, when, I, when I was writing this, my, my latest book about out-of-body experiences, which just has a little bit about near-death experiences, I kept discovering these kind of connections. Oh, so the endorphins are doing both these things. They're making these positive emotions and they're causing this memory release. This is a wonderful thing about the science that's now, now coming out. We're beginning, to, these things are beginning to fall into place. And that doesn't happen if you talk about non-local consciousness or, 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 or consciousness beyond the brain. It doesn't take you anywhere. Mm -hmm. Near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences tend to, I think, have a certain sequence. They tend to be kind of sequential. For example, the near-death experience might begin with seeing a pinpoint of light that gets bigger or uh, going down a tunnel. How does science explain these phenomena? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, and this is one of the questions that is in my mind. Um, and, and I think we're not there. And I hope we one, will one day be. Why these things tend to fall out. They're not always in the, in the same order. But they do tend to fall in that order. You know, is it some cascade of neurotransmitters? Is it some effect passing from one part of the brain to another? I don't know. But... One thing we do know, you described the, um, the pinpoint of light that gets bigger and bigger. Um, and then you can have the light at the end of the tunnel. The one thing that's important to say about the tunnel is some skeptics, and it, it's very irritating, will say, oh, this, this is tunnel vision. It's not tunnel vision. Tunnel vision is something completely different that is caused by um, damage in the eyes or lack of oxygen to the eyes, and it's like a blackness, and the whole world is in a little tiny bit at the end. Tunnel experience isn't like that. I've had plenty of tunnel experiences. That can be, the tunnel can be a tunnel of leaves, or it can be like a tube, or it can be like an underground train, or, you know, it, it has content. Sometimes it has, has, has spirals around it and, 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 and checkerboards around it and lots of little pictures around it and so on. Now, we know from the neuroscience what's going on there. This is something that was, that was we had the mathematical basis of it some decades ago, but it's only kind of come together more recently. The way the visual system works, the way it's structured means that if you get this same hyperactivity really I'm saying that all of the phenomena of the near-death experience can be put down to hyperactivity or random firing of neurons in different parts of the brain. When you get that kind of random firing in the visual cortex the way the cells are laid out means that if this activity is kind of spreading in waves across the visual cortex that will look like um, um, it will look like rings expanding rings or spirals in the world out there. So if you're, you know, in crisis and your eyes shut, that's what you're going to experience. And obviously the random firing will seem like light because that's what the, the visual cortex is signaling. So you have a little bit of this at the beginning and there's a pinpoint of light where there are the most cells are representing the place where you're looking right in the center. So the pinpoint will start there. And then as, as the effect, if the effect carries on and you get more and more and more of this random firing, then it gets bigger and it seems to expand. And if you imagine yourself with your eyes closed um, in some crisis coming near death, um, you've got no reference 
of, of where you are. There's just this light coming bigger and bigger and it will just seem as though you're going forward into the light and it ultimately comes to take over completely before ultimately stopping, I would say. <laughs> but other people would say, well, you go on to the light and that's heaven and you go, you know. I, I would say, no, there comes a point when the, um, the, the cells simply run out of energy and, and, and that's the end. Mm -hmm. Can I say something else about sure, this light? Sure, sure. This light is very interesting because in some meditation techniques, it is possible to actually induce that light. And I've had some um, training in, in this where with certain kinds of concentration, you can actually induce this central light and it becomes bigger and bigger. And I've had other experiences of the light which tends to come in from the side and kind of envelop you in this wonderful sense of light. You know, these are natural things that are available to human beings because of the way our brains are. It's not there's some, I don't think, there's some, you know, I don't know, God streaming some light on us or heaven coming through. Well. If, if there is, let somebody let somebody ask the questions and, and answer them. Right. In that. How does it feel when you're enveloped in this light? Oh, lovely, wonderful. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, like, oh. And how do you explain it? What, that feeling? Mm -hmm. Well, and I what, suspect... With the light itself and being enveloped by well, it's it. Just, it's just, um, it, 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 it's just a visual cortex uh, um, firing away in a much yeah. more energetic way. And you're saying voice. this is the same kind of light that people experience in a near-death? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, well, from my understanding, uh, brain function ceases after 15 seconds in a cardiac arrest. People flatline, and when they're brought back and they have a, a near-death experience, you know, I, I wonder, and they report an enhanced consciousness during a period when they were supposed to be unconscious. How do you explain this? Oh, well, I couldn't if it's true, and I don't think it is. If you read, for example, um, Pim van Lommel mm -hmm. will state, does state, again and again, in the same words in many chapters and papers, um, that these experiences happened when the brain had no activity. Mm. We do not know that. This is an open question. What we do know is that people have described things, um, very vivid experiences, after um, they're able to describe it, sometime after the crisis is over. But we, the, there is no case in which we know exactly when that was happening. It could be happening when, if, if the brain activity did stop, and, and very, very few cases, I mean, people typically coming close to death are not doing it in a scanner or with an EEG electrodes all over them, mm -hmm. you know? We don't know exactly when their brain stopped. We usually know when the heart stops and when the blood stops pumping around. So that's something. So let's stick with that at least. <coughs> so it could be that these experiences are happening as they come into that state, um, as the the, the, the heart stops in the cardiac arrest, the blood will still be moving a little bit, there'll still be oxygen in it, that could be the opportunity. Or when it starts up again, it could be starting up again then. And unless we know exactly when it was happening, then it could be one of those two. So that's really an open question. And it's disingenuous of people to say that we know that it happened when their brain wasn't. We don't know that. You mentioned another thing which is very, very interesting, and this is also why I talk about the new science of, uh, of out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences. Um, the classic idea, which would seem quite logical, is that the, if the heart stops, then the blood ceases going around in the brain, and therefore all experiences should stop. Up to a point that it, that is so, and that's known from lots of medical studies. But there have been reports for a long time of the, some sort of burst of activity that comes rather later. 
So an experiment was done in an extraordinarily um, helpful and difficult experiment in 2009 with seven people who were on life support systems with no hope of any recovery and it was decided to turn off the life support. Now they had EEG electrodes and so on to ensure that they were not suffering and in pain and whatever done very carefully and what they saw in these experiments was that yes the brain activity went down and then kind of flatlined but then before it completely stopped altogether there was a burst of activity lasting anywhere between about half, um, half a minute and three minutes, which is quite a long time. Now that burst of activity would be what I'm supposing, and I'm coming over all these years of research I've been doing, to the view that that burst may be quite enough to, to um, produce these extraordinary experiences and would be due to hyper hyperactivity, disorganised activity in all these different parts of the brain, lasting rather briefly. Now if you're then resuscitated, that's what you're going to remember. And subsequent to that, there have been experiments with rats, where they've caused a cardiac arrest in the rats, and measured them, and again you get this slow tailing off, and then this burst of activity um, before it goes off again. I don't know that this is the answer, but this is the kind of place to look and that a timing is critical. So don't believe when, these, when people say, oh, this person saw this when their brain had no activity. Unless they had that person in a scanner or with an EEG on them, we don't know that. We will find out, I'm sure we will. My hypothesis, my bets will go on, it'll be, it'll be that later burst that's doing it in many cases, or it'll be, for, be before or after. But we'll find out. These are questions that we can answer or will answer, I'm sure. How does science account for the enhanced consciousness? Oh, what does enhanced consciousness mean? It, from my own out-of-body experience, I think I can, I can, you know, I can sort of remember it now. This extraordinary clarity, this wonderful openness, this vividness of everything. What is that? One little clue in my own life, I would say, is long, long time ago, decades ago, I was really getting, I felt that life was unreal, it was, it was horrible. Um, many people do get this and it's horrible. It took me a very long time to work out that the world seemed unreal because I got so many thoughts, so many troubles, so many difficulties that I almost couldn't look out of my own eyes at the world around me. And you will know from meditation, won't you, that when the mind is calmed and becomes still, Everything seems more vivid, more beautiful, more immediately here in front, because you're not blurring it all with this crap. And I think that the enhanced consciousness is something like that. When a lot of the activity falls away and there's just, let us suppose there's activity in the higher parts of the visual cortex, the, 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 there's not, no information coming in from the eyes and ears anymore, they, they've stopped working but there's this random activity going on. That's all there is, this is going to seem clear. And when that drops away, there may, be, there may be just a sense of, of being there without there being much content and, and that kind of clarity. I think all sorts of things can happen. We're very far from understanding. I, I'm speculating here on, on the basis of what we know, but we need to know an awful lot more. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that it means that we're you know, going into some kind of non-local other realm or something. Be mm -hmm. You know, I suppose it could be, but what, what sense would that make? What would it mean? I do not know.
And what about the feeling of uh, overwhelming love? Many people report that for the first time in their lives they realize that through their whole life they've never bothered to love themselves. And when they come back they realize uh, with kind of a shock that they're capable of loving themselves and that's okay. Or... Uh, oh, stop, stop, stop. Okay, right. that's, that's enough of a question. Well, it's a big, profound question, right. isn't it? Right. To, to a simple extent, I think the endorphins have something to do with this. The, the sense of, of, of painlessness and everything's okay. But I think much deeper and more important in this is if the self is as it appears from the ongoing understanding of the brain, it's a construction that the brain is making. So we have the body schema constructed in the temporoparietal junction on the right side. That's the, the, the model of our body and where it is and what it's doing that we rely on every moment of our waking lives. And that is connected through to um, memories in the temporal lobe, to um, control systems in the frontal lobes, to a sense of self and agency and ownership of the body and so on. Now this is a complex thing that the brain is doing. Now just imagine that in a near-death situation the brain can't any longer keep making that kind of um, that kind of construction and the self starts to to kind of drop away or to disintegrate. Mm -hmm. Now that's something that can happen through decades of mystical experience but I think it's kind of forced upon people in, in some near-death experiences. Once you have felt being aware, being alive, being alert, without there being a me who's doing it, uh, I, I, I think that the grip of the false self is, is, is no longer so powerful. You Why? don't any longer. But, well, because, you've, because there's been experience without self. I mean, there are many people, there are many neuroscientists who will say things like, well, you can't have experience without an experiencer. Well, you can, you know. You can in meditation, you can in near-death experiences. That loosens the grip of the imaginary self. But also, these parts that construct the self are the same parts of the brain that are involved in empathy, in understanding other people. And I think that that's part of the connection. And also the sense that I thought myself was so important, and yet when it's gone, everything's fine. Now, that's a very profound thought. And then... You, you never see yourself in the same way again. And I think the kind of empathy towards oneself is quite natural when that has happened. So I think these kinds of things are going on. And that, that, that is what's responsible for this, this feeling that, that I'm a better person, that I'm no longer so obsessed with myself, that, that I can be more kind to others and kind to myself. We're all, we're all in this together. We're all these ephemeral things. Mm -hmm. Perhaps I'm going a little far in that direction, but there have been some... Um, near-death experiences, there are rather few who articulate this kind of view very clearly. And in my own experience, in my own out-of-body out experience, it wasn't near-death, but uh, that's what I think happened. A, 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 a kind of thrown-upon-you dissolution of self. Then self comes back, but it's never quite as grippy again. Mm -hmm. The Buddhist of the self is uh, illusory. And when people are on the point of death, they often, there's, it seems like there's there's no longer a need for the ego to protect the body because the body is going. And so the ego kind of uh, goes with it. Um, so what am I saying here? Um, so th there's an opportunity maybe to see what the ego has been. Um, and if you can see what the ego has been from a point of view that is no longer the ego, then... 
Perhaps you would be more clear about what it is that's important. I, I, I was going to say I'm sorry to laugh. I'm not sorry to laugh. I'm laughing because it's kind of funny. And it's kind of the cosmic joke, mm -hmm. you know? Well, when you see it, I, to me, it's something like, oh, and some people hate this, don't they? They, 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 they hate the kind of materialism that I'm describing. But, but when you kind of see it, it's all just stuff happening as it's got to happen. And the self was no more real than any of the kind of supposed eternal entities and everything is all just ephemeral stuff happening. It, it is funny and one can laugh. And then out of that laughter comes a kind of deep compassion, a sort of, a sort of sorrow, a sort of, oh, oh. And I had this in the midst of my early out-of-body experience, looking down on the world of people struggling and the and the pain and the suffering and thinking, don't you realise you don't have to suffer like that? Um, is that somehow what you're getting at? Yes, I think so. Right. Yeah. But also compassion for yourself, for all the, yeah. the ego-centred motives that one has had. Yeah. 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 But they're very powerful. And right. they come back. Yeah. I've, I've had experiences of dissolution and then it comes back and I really want to get this and do that and be successful and people to watch my videos and you know, it, it, it comes back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yes, that's, that's yeah. the sort of experience that, right. that happens to quite a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So there may be no way to measure us a subjective experience, but there is a way to see and perhaps measure the after effects of a, of a subjective experience and when many of these people come back to life I think the statistics are 70% of them get a divorce because their spouse is no longer recognized them because the change has been so remarkable. I, I, I don't know about percentages but I certainly know there are cases like that. There are cases where people's marriage and love life and whatever are wonderfully enhanced because they, they're not so selfish. Uh, anymore and they suddenly realize that a lot of the trivial things they were fighting about and so on just drop away and it's better but as you said there are also cases where um, where uh, the, the the rest of the family just can't cope with this change particularly where you have uh, let's say a man who has a, has a near-death experience and and just does not really care anymore about acquiring money and status and everything else and a wife who really does care about that stuff and suddenly her husband is kind of <laughs> that's very difficult. I also interviewed a man a long time ago when I was doing research on this in Bristol who who had been he wasn't terribly religious but his his wife he was religious a bit and and he was in, involved in the church and so on and his wife was was more religious than him and he had a non-death experience, as it were. He had he, he, he had a kind of a vision which then turned into the doctors and enormous gratitude for the doctors um, and what they had done for him. And um, he lost any any kind of faith. And that was that was very, very difficult because he couldn't any longer go on doing the work that he did in the church. He just thought it was all, you know, stupid mm -hmm. and, and, and that was very difficult. So although the changes typically in near-death experiences are very positive in the sense of becoming less clingy to self, less concerned with money and acquisition and status. That too can, as you said, that can have mm -hmm. its problems. And I've I found that some people who've been religious before this experience, they be, they become less religious afterward because they they realize that the teachings of the church, uh, the, the support of the church, is irrelevant compared to what they themselves experience directly. Mm -hmm. And and so. Um, all these these notions of things that you're supposed to do and, and and what is truth fall by the wayside because 
what is real has become more real. How do you account for that? Well, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Um, there are real experiences of letting go of all the rubbish and seeing that what matters is, well, I suppose I'm just putting it in, in my own kind of way, but just being kind to people and relating to people and being present with what is and just taking it for what it is now because there isn't a heaven beyond and there isn't a God looking over your shoulder and there aren't all the people you know dead watching you and disapproving of you and all of that is enormously freeing, freeing in a way that enables you to act much more lovingly and kindly and spontaneously towards other people and their needs. Mm -hmm. Isn't that enough of, of an answer? Sure, sure, sure. And, and, and then the religions and the rules and the strictures and all of that, then you give mm -hmm. them up. But you see, one thing that I think is, is, is really positive out of this is, is, is it's one of the many, many things feeding into a movement of, um, if you like, how do you describe it, spiritual naturalism, um, uh, secular spirituality, there are lots of terms for this kind of thing. There are a lot of people now um, trying to find a way to have spiritual practice, mystical experiences, whatever it is, to understand these things, to practice a life where your life is based in this without a god, without angels, without other worlds, a naturalistic worldview without miracles, without anything supernatural, which we can still genuinely call spiritual. And, oh, that's really hopeful, hopeful to me, um, because it, it doesn't lead to all the power games that you get with the major religions and all the abuses. And, well, you know, you, you know plenty of, of these terrible stories in, in, in all the religions. And maybe it'll be as bad with these secular spirituality, I don't know, but I, I, I think it won't, and I think it's, it's basis in a scientific, inquiring understanding of what it means to be human is helpful and people being able to talk now in a way they couldn't back in 1970 when I first was thrown into this. You know, people thought you were bonkers if you talked about this. At least now people know about these experiences and can talk about them and can be helped then to move on. If you have a dramatic near-death experience, for some people they just shut down, they don't know how to deal with it, but now there are enough people around to say, well, how about learning meditation or how about practicing mindfulness or how about these kinds of things that could help you um, stabilize what you what you found there and bring that into your life as a as a pe better person growing from that experience rather than shutting down on it so these are the kind of hopeful things that i think have been going on um in the what 30 years or so of of, of the whole idea of, of ndes opening up in in the public sphere mm -hmm. okay sue thank you